Good morning. Uh, please open your Bibles to James chapter 1 if you have one. You can find the notes on our uh, website or in the bulletin in front of you. And while you're turning there, I want to take a moment just to express my uh, sadness that I cannot be with you all in person. I was so looking forward to gathering with the body again. But uh, my family's recovering well, and, and it seemed best to the elders um, for me to just hang back just to be safe. I have not been sick. I'm pretty confident my immunities have held up. And so I trust I'll be able to return to you soon. And I trust God's grace will be sufficient to work through this um, difficult medium Anyway, having turned to James chapter 1, I would draw your attention to the closing verses of this first section. We've been working through James chapter 1, verses 2 to 15, a prolonged discussion on the issue of testing and temptation. I'll remind you that James, after his initial greeting in verse 2, in verse two enters his first imperative command, the first of many, and in a book centering on the reality of faith, persevering, bearing out good works, under trial, under temptation, relying on God's wisdom, James begins, and it's notable that he begins his discussion, commanding us, calling us, charging us to think about our temptations rightly. It's crucial how we respond to trials, how we respond to tests and temptations. And he says in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And to summarize James's argument, he, he gives the command, you, you guys have got to see good things in this. You've got to see God's good purpose in this. You've got to see something to rejoice in, even with the suffering. Let me tell you why. There's a now reason, there's a temporal, immediate benefit, and there's a long-term eschatological benefit. The now benefit is as you regard your trials rightly, as we trust God's goodness in working through them, we grow in endurance. Our faith is tested, and it grows stronger. And then endurance becomes the fertile seedbed for all a full-orbed, mature Christian character. We see that in verse 4. Let steadfastness have full effect that may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So there's, there's a reason. There's a good thing to set your eye on, to remind yourself of in trial. Then he addresses the case, but what if, what if I don't know how to do that? What if I'm not strong enough yet? He says, oh, oh I'm glad you asked. Ask God, and he gives gives wisdom. He gives it without measure. He gives it gladly, not stingily. But you have to ask in faith. You have to come to him as a true child, to a true father. You have to come as a true slave, to a true master. You don't come inwardly divided. Maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll do that. We'll see what God does. But if you can come in sincerity, single-heartedly, God will give you the wisdom you need to endure any trial with joy. Then, in verses 9 through 11, he addresses two of the major contexts of our testing, our socioeconomic position. There are particular trials that tend to face the poor and the lowly, and there are particular trials and temptations that face the rich and the powerful. And, and James gives some sort of broad counsel to both groups. And then in verse 12, the last time we looked at this text, we looked at James putting out the eschatological or the later blessing and benefit. He's again trying to emphasize for us the, the importance, what a big deal it is on how we interact with, how we think about, how we regard our trials. It's no small matter. Right now, it'll determine whether you mature, whether you grow, whether your faith is strengthened or whether it weakens. Well, verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. And when we studied that, we saw the crown really, which is life, eternal life. Which is to say, those who love Jesus, those who have genuine faith, their faith doesn't wither and die ultimately, but they persevere, they overcome. The one who perseveres to the end, Jesus says, will be saved. Now, this is because the good shepherd shepherds us. It's not because of our own effort only. We're putting effort in. The shepherd is guarding us. No one can snatch us from his hands. But if you hope to go to heaven, you and I must determine to persevere in faith. 
So that's, that's the best argument he can put forward for why we need to engage with our trials rightly. There's a benefit now, there's a benefit later. Our passage this morning considers the other path. If we've considered what we ought to do and the great blessings and reward and grace of God on that path, there is, of course, another path. There's the path of unbelief. There's the path of sin and folly. And it has a now reward, and it has a later reward. Let's read these verses and see and have a word of prayer, and we'll dive in. James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Lord God, I pray that you would work through this medium, um, that you would cause the increase. Lord, it's not my presence or my words that have power. It's your word. It's your truth. It's your spirit that gives life. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bless this message, that you would bless this meeting and gathering of your people, that you would enable us beyond our weakened abilities, that you would supply what is missing, that you would give wisdom, that you would open our eyes to see, give us ears to hear, especially, Lord, that we would be instructed, corrected, to think rightly and to understand temptation rightly, that we would not blaspheme your name with our words, that we would not excuse our actions, but that we would think rightly, speak rightly, and then act rightly in the face of temptation. In Jesus' name, amen. I believe it was Oscar Wilde who famously said, I can resist anything except temptation. Strangely enough, 14 years ago this July was the uh, occasion of Serena and I coming out. We had, didn't have our brood with us. It was just us. We came out, we stayed at the Nations, and we candid- I candidated for the position of associate pastor. And One of the things I did in a very busy weekend, we saved the schedule, it was jam-packed, was teach a lesson to the youth on Sunday morning, much as Pastor Daniel does now. And strangely enough, the text I taught from was this passage. Uh, we talked about temptation. So there's something um, special about returning to this text. This is the very first thing I ever taught to this body in this church. Um, and this really is a bread and butter passage. The reason I taught it then, the reason why I think it's so important now, is th- this is Christianity 101. Everyone deals with temptation. Everyone has to fight or surrender to temptation. No one escapes this. This is everyone's situation. Some topics, dealing with marriage, dealing with children, dealing with singleness, dealing with sickness and disease, can only speak to some people at a time in the body. It may be equipping all of us for ministry, but not all of us are in that place. In speaking to temptation, James is addressing each and every one of us where we sit. Now we're going to look at this passage in two points. There's a command, stop blaming God for your temptation. There's your first plank. There's a command, stop blaming God for your temptation. And then there's instruction. We need to learn that you are responsible for your temptation. Okay? Now, you can see I put the uh, wording here strongly, stop blaming God for your temptation. Now, the reason I did that is the way James frames this in Greek becomes pretty clear. He assumes this is going on. You can even see some of that in English. Up till now, he's been addressing the body of scattered believers throughout the Greek world as my brothers, you. Now we switch to the third person. Let no one, let not one when he. The assumption is this is taking place. James is aware that throughout the churches, scattered around Asia Minor, scattered around the Greek world, there are believers doing this very thing. This is not a suggestion. This is an imperative. 
don't do it or stop doing it. I think it would be fair to assume then that if that's true in his day, there are some here who may be doing this even now. So there's an immediate and direct prohibition. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. We got to stop doing that. That's the first thing we got to get in our heads. The rest of the passage explains why. If you're doing this, you're thinking rightly, wrongly about God, and you're thinking wrongly about the nature of temptation. But the first thing to get in our heads is we we need to stop doing this. We need to be careful. We're not doing this. You understand how doing this, blaming God for temptation, is blasphemous. And yet, I I think as we look at this, you'll see it's all too easy to do. All too easy to do. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. So the first thing I want to observe is this. In temptation, we often want excuses more than victory. We often want excuses more than victory. James has been giving us instruction on how to overcome temptation, how to endure in trial, how to receive a crown of life. The person saying this isn't trying to win. They're trying to shift the blame. They want an excuse. And and excuses are appealing things. Because if you think about it, a victory in temptation works once. If I battle my desire to get angry today, there's no guarantee that tomorrow I will succeed. I, I win in this moment. But if I can find a good excuse, well, I can use that again and again and again and again. Excuses are very appealing. We've got to be careful. We've got to examine our own hearts. What is it you and I want in our temptation? Do we actually want to become more like Christ? Do we want to grow? Do we want to be obedient? Or do we really just want to avoid guilt, shame, and blame? In temptation, we often want excuses more than victory because a good excuse can last forever, right? In the uh, Christian book world, I mean, in the book world in general, but even in the church as well, you, you give people good excuses for their sin, you'll sell books. You'll sell books. If you tell people it's not their fault, really not their fault, you, you'll, you'll find an audience. More about that later. The second thing I want to observe is this. There are many ways to blame God. There are many ways to blame God. I think few people would be so bold and brash as to say out loud, audibly, to an audience, God's tempting me. Now, perhaps some might do that, but let me show you someone else who did something similar, just a little twist. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, when the Lord God comes to the man and the woman in the garden, and he asks them what has happened? This is what Adam says. The man said, this woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, can there be any doubt in your mind that Adam is blaming God? Not directly, but indirectly. This woman you gave to me. So really, if you think about it, God, it's kind of your fault. I mean, maybe both of ours, but I mean, let's not be too hard on ourselves here. No, he's blaming God. He's absolutely blaming God. Proverbs 19.3 says that when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. When a man acts foolishly and the consequences that he reaps from that folly come upon him, it's quite natural of the sinful heart to actually become angry at God, to blame God. The Apostle Paul envisions someone in Romans chapter 9 doing the same thing. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now, it's quite natural for us to blame God. There are many ways we can do that. Now, the direct way is just say, this is God's fault. He did this to me. But if we learn from the example of Adam, I think I'm doing the same thing Adam does when I say, you know, my wife is such and such a way. When she acts in such and such a way, oh, that's why I get upset. That's why I get angry. That's why I become selfish. I just left off the bit, my wife, that God gave to me. But it's the same meaning, right? So when we start blaming our circumstances, when we start blaming other people, I think we're blaming also the God who is sovereign over it all. 
right? When I blame the traffic and the poor drivers. Man, I, I just can't deal with poor drivers who God keeps in existence and is determined to be here in this road with me, right? I mean, if, if Adam is seen to be blaming God, then I think there are many ways you and I can blame God without directly pointing our finger, without directly, you know, doing it. I think we tend to be more cowardly. In one sense, Adam's more courageous and bold in his folly and sin. We just, we just blame circumstances. I mean, our language betrays it. Right? They just make me so mad. You know, it's not me, it's them, and they, they make me something. I'm the, I'm the victim here. I'm passive. I've been acted upon, really. Now, there's a sad double problem with this. First, when we blame God, either directly or indirectly, we, we blaspheme. James, in our very next section here, this in the next section, beginning in verse 16, is tightly linked. Look at this. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So he's like, brothers, understand, God gives good things and only good things. There's no flickering light in him. Light one day, dark another. Can I point you to example number one? He birthed you anew by his word, according to his will. It was good things. And yet we with our tongues ascribe to God temptation and sin and evil. It's blasphemy. It's ingratitude. But there's also another tragedy in this. Such an attitude keeps us from drawing near to the one who would give us help. You're not going to draw near to a God you're blaming for your sin. Are you? So the blank here, in temptation, draw near to God. In temptation, draw near to God. He gives help. We've already seen he gives wisdom if you ask. I don't know how to deal with this, Lord. I don't know how to have a good attitude in the midst of this trial. Help. And James says, oh, he gladly gives. And and turn to chapter 4, verse 8. 7 and 8. We read, actually go back to verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. You've been struggling with sin and temptation. You've been failing. He gives more grace. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. But you're not going to draw near to the one you're blaming. You're not going to draw near to the one you resent and blaspheme. So such talk impinges the glory and honor of God and it keeps yourself from the very remedy you need the very help that is freely available stop blaming God for your temptation let no one say when he's tempted I'm being tempted by God then for the remainder of verse 13 he's going to give us the reason that command would be enough but he goes on to say for God himself For God cannot be tempted with evil. The idea here in the blank is God is untemptable. You could almost translate, another way to translate, God's inexperienced of evil. How could God tempt when he doesn't know about evil experientially? Have you ever stopped to consider that? God is omniscient and he knows all things propositionally, but God does not know what it is to experience sin. Except, of course, the Lord Jesus on the cross experiencing the guilt of our sin. God does not know what it feels like to commit sin. He's inexperienced. It's it's other to him. He is holy. The fundamental idea of holiness is separate otherness. He's completely apart from sin. God can't tempt you to sin. He, He doesn't know of sin in that way. Maybe in one sense, James is implying he'd be a poor tempter. Because he himself knows nothing of being tempted by evil. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, I've got to pause here and answer one question. It says here, God cannot be tempted by evil, and yet we're told Jesus was tempted. He was tempted, in fact, by the devil, was he not? Let me try to briefly answer that. 
It would seem, based on this verse, that we have a dilemma if we want to insist that Jesus is fully God and Jesus was tempted. How can Jesus, who is fully God, be tempted? And they have debates and discussions. But there's a key phrase here, of evil. Think about, I'll I'll just try to give a brief answer. Think about Jesus' temptation. Satan is not putting evil carrots in front of Jesus. He's putting good things in front of him. Good things at the wrong time. Good things in the wrong way. But things in and of themselves, good. See, when you and I sin, sometimes it's pursuing, wanting something that is good in and of itself, but we're getting it the wrong way. We're getting it at the wrong time. We're getting it in a manner that God prohibits. And therefore, we sin. Other times, we want something that's just fundamentally wicked. I want people to praise me. I want to sleep with people outside of marriage. I I want to crush my enemies. I want vengeance to be mine. Well, now I'm desiring fundamentally wicked things. But think about Jesus' temptation. Was he not truly hungry after fasting for 40 days? Do not think he truly desired the bread. No, I think he, he, he did. I think strong yearnings for hunger came up. What made the temptation sinful is his father determined, you're going to spend 40 days fasting in the wilderness, and to summon the bread, to make the bread, would be to defy his father's will. Likewise, he's offered all the kingdoms of the world. Well, is it not the kingdoms of the world for which Jesus dies that he might inherit them? Do you not think he truly desires them? Of course he does. The temptation is you can have the thing you want without the thing you don't want, the cross. So Jesus, I believe, is truly tempted, but not of evil. Satan takes good carrots, puts them in front of him, and then tempts Jesus. You can have this an easier way. And Jesus perseveres. Jesus doesn't sin because he is the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. But he was tempted, and he is God. That's important because one of my favorite passages is Hebrews 4, 15 to 16. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16, which on the basis of the similarity, he was tempted just as we are. We're encouraged to draw near. If you don't believe this, you're not going to draw near. Do we, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, notice the building on, we have a high priest who can sympathize when we come to him, confessing our weakness, confessing our temptations, confessing our failures. He doesn't go, I have no idea what you're talking about. Why would you do that? No, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he is in every respect and tempted as we are. Yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive grace and mercy and help in time of need. Okay? So there's more we can say about that in a future ABF, but we do have to address that, okay? And then he goes on, he says, God himself tempts no one. God himself tempts no one. Now I need to make a distinction here. There is a difference between testing and tempting. Testing and tempting are two different things. Now, what's difficult is in the Greek text here, they're not two distinctly different words. We get test and testing, noun and verb, but they're from the same word group, parosmos. Parazo, I mean. And so the word can mean either a test or a temptation, and the context makes it clear. I think the context here makes it clear that in the earlier part of this section, in verse 2 and 3 and 4, we're clearly talking about testing. The testing of your faith. Here's a way to maybe think, helpfully think about the distinction between testing and tempting. Testing speaks to the externals. Testing speaks to the circumstances, the situation, the, the events. And we're going to see, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but we're going to see in verses 14 and 15, the temptation's an inward issue. It takes place inside the man, inside the woman, inside the child. And so God himself, he himself tempts no one. It's it's important to make this distinction because if you know your Old Testament, God freely admits he tests people. 
The story of God commanding Abraham to offer up Isaac on the altar begins this way in Genesis 22.1. After these things, God tested Abraham. The logic of our passage in James assumes as much. I'm to consider it a good thing when I encounter trials because trials grow my faith and produce endurance and, and build my character. Now, whose purpose and plan is that? It's not the devil's. That's our father's good purpose. The testing of his children is part of his plan and purpose for us to grow us. Of course it is. And God is sovereign over that. Even as you read the book of Job, God sovereignly determining to allow Satan to strike down Job's family, to allow Satan to strike Job with boils and sores and illness. Oh no, God allowed that. We're even taught in, in the prayer of the disciples that Jesus gives to his disciples, lead us not into testing or temptation. So James is not saying God has nothing to do with anything regarding this stuff. He's making a very specific claim that's absolutely true. He himself tempts no one. He himself tempts no one. So I, I would suggest a helpful way to make the distinctions. That battle that takes place inside of you and I that we're going to see, where our own desires lure and entice, yeah, he himself has, is not doing that. He's not doing that. He can deal with the externals. And James is aware Satan can be involved. We, we saw in chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, Satan, the devil will flee from you. Satan can be involved in trials. But God himself tempts no one. We're going to see in verses um, 14 and 15 that really the issue of temptation and sin is very specific, very narrow, very precise, and intensely inward and personal. And so whatever involvement God has, and he has tremendous sovereign control over the effects in areas of our life. In chapter 4, James will say, you're a vapor, you're a wind. If the Lord permits, I'll go. If the Lord permits, I'll go there. The Lord makes alive. The Lord brings death. The Lord opens and closes the womb. The Lord determines the places and positions of man. He's sovereign over our circumstances, but he does not tempt anyone. He himself does not tempt anyone. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10.13 makes it clear. He does the exact opposite. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Rather than tempting you, God is making sure your trials, your temptations are not too great. He's restraining them. He's holding them back. He's not doing it. He's restraining it. God is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Don't, don't blame God for your temptation. Run to him. Run to him for help. Run to him for the way of escape. Okay? So that's, that's the first point. Stop blaming God. We've got to get into our heads, and we've got to root out all the subtle ways we blame God. I'm guessing not many of us here would be so bold or brash as to point our finger, this is God's fault, God's doing this. But out of my mouth, and I hear out of many other mouths, come the secondary agents, this wife you gave to me, these children you gave to me, this boss you gave to me, this democratic leadership you gave to me, whatever, this sickness you gave to me. We just leave off the you gave to me. And we blame them for our temptation. Well, let's turn to verses 14 and 15 and see where we should actually look. Okay? Point number two. You are responsible for your temptation. You, each one of us, is responsible for our temptation. It's a matter of one. Look at the language. Each person, each one. This is not a corporate activity. This is individual. Each one each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This is an issue of one. It's not a group project. For each and every one of us, our temptation is encapsulated within ourselves. Okay? So we need to get this straight. Your first blank here. Your 
own desires and no one else's, your own desires are responsible for temptation. My own desires are responsible for my temptation. When I'm speaking about responsibility, causality for temptation, I need to name no one other than myself. You need name no one other than yourself. And we need to retrain the way we speak because, man, it is so common. They make me, that makes me, I just don't, yeah. And we're passive always. It's not my fault, it's them. Each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Turn, turn to Mark chapter 7. James here is just echoing what Jesus taught. James is just echoing what his older brother taught. Okay? And I'm going to pause here and hammer this because we nod and we go, yeah, yeah. And then we also nod when smooth-talking teachers, appealing books are written. They say, no, 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 it's not really, not really your fault. Not really, when you think about it. So I, got, I want to hammer this point. Mark 7, 21 to 23. This is Jesus. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile the person. Sin for Jeremy doesn't come from out there comes from in here. Sin for you doesn't come from out there. It comes from inside you. We, we need to own that. We're nodding. Yeah, okay. Let me give you an analogy and then try to walk through some examples I think that challenge us in the church to really agree with this. Imagine I had a full two-liter bottle of Pepsi and I carefully cracked the lid, took it off, then I vigorously started shaking it up. Well, I'd have a wet, sopping mess all over me, right? That, I think, is a helpful, if not clumsy, way of thinking about the relationship between external circumstances, the testing, and the temptation within. Circumstances can shake up our hearts, can shake up our desires. But what wells up, what springs up, came from inside. So absolutely, your childhood, the way your parents raise you, oh man, that's going to hugely be significant and affect the types of trials, the intensity of them that you face. Likewise, your health and your context there, the pain, the suffering you endure every day, the, the issues of infirmity that you deal with, oh, they're going to provoke you. They're going to strengthen, empower, and even make your trials more difficult in certain areas? Of course. But all they can do is incite and play upon your desires and what comes out when sin, when we respond sinfully to such things. So it was inside the Pepsi bottle, it comes out. Even if your brain's biochemistry is off, which is not something that's easy to prove, but even if it is, your ADD didn't cause you to be slow to speak. I mean, quick to speak and slow to listen. Your sin, if it's sin, and the Bible defines what sin is, if we're dealing with sin, harsh words, the foolish person who doesn't want to listen or learn but just wants to talk, fearful anxiety, sinful anxiety and fear. Not all fear is sinful. But when it is, it comes from this. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the, the book, The Five Love Languages. I'm picking an example that I think would be popular. I'm trying to show this can be subtle. Five Love Languages. Immensely popular book. They've come up with sequels, Five Love Languages for teens, for children, for pets, for... No, I don't, I'm probably exaggerating there, but very popular book. Now, there's a fundamental truth in the first chapter that blows everyone's mind that's absolutely true. 
And then the point that Gary Chapman makes in the opening of the book that's absolutely true is this. Do not assume that the things that make you feel loved, the things that make you feel appreciated, are the same things that others feel appreciated by. Some people really love words of encouragement, and so they think that's, if that's how I feel loved, then I'm going to go love other people by encouraging them with words. But different people, we have to learn how to love different people. We need to give thought what, what, what types of things can best communicate my love, my appreciation for this other person. And amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. That's wonderful. It's great. Good stuff. And then he keeps writing. If this was a pamphlet, I'd endorse that wholeheartedly. But Chapman wants to go beyond this and come up with a, a paradigm, a model for Christian growth and sanctification. And it's godless, simply meaning God doesn't appear in the model. Okay? Let me read to you how he envisions this. He likes to think of a love tank. I liked the metaphor the first time I heard it. Inside every child is an emotional love tank waiting to be filled with love. When a child really feels loved, he will develop normally, but when the love tank is empty, the child will misbehave. Much of the misbehavior of children is motivated by the cravings of an empty love tank. And James says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. To make that a little further, to develop his theory on page 23, I, by the way, I linked a really excellent, well-written article by David Pallison. Um, just before I came up here on Facebook. I, I'd encourage you to read it. Page 23. Here's his thesis. Could it be that deep inside hurting couples exists an invisible emotional love tank with its gauge on empty? Could the misbehavior, withdrawals, harsh words, critical spirit occur because of that empty tank? James says no, by the way. James says no, no. You, you're, you're lust. But no, he... Empty tank. If we could find a way to fill it, could the marriage be reborn? With a full tank, would couples be able to create an emotional climate where it's possible to discuss differences and resolve conflicts? Could that tank be the key that makes marriage work? Notice what's missing from this key dynamic to marriage. Grace, Christ, forgiveness, repentance, endurance, any concept of sin, we're just talking about misbehavior. Now let me show you this in action. And again, I'm not trying to beat up on this book. I'm trying to show how we need to be aware of the subtle ways we can affirm in one hand what I'm teaching here and deny it on the other hand. Chapman goes to explain a situation of marital infidelity, of adultery. Listen to the way he frames it. The woman stopped speaking her husband's love language. His love tank became empty, and he fell in love with another woman and committed adultery. Here's how Chapman describes it. Look for the way blame gets shifted. I sympathized with Brent, for I'd been there. Thousands of husbands and wives have been there, emotionally empty, wanting to do the right thing, not wanting to hurt anyone, but being pushed by their emotional needs to seek love outside of marriage. And if you continue that section in the book, Brett's marriage is not fixed by him confessing his sin, calling out to the Lord for forgiveness, repenting. No, the new, the new love interest fades and his wife begins to speak his love language and then their marriage is reborn and it's healthy as ever. No sin, no repentance, no confession, no faith, no endurance, no blame. That this is a bestseller. It's subtle. We don't want to really believe this. We nod our heads. Maybe it's easy for us to think other people sin is their desires. But we've got to own this. Our desires. Each one of us is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Our circumstances, our genetics, our biology, the people around us, our boss, the political climate, the culture we live in. Oh, yes, that can shake up the Pepsi bottle. That can rattle us. But if sin occurs, James is telling us how that happened, and we can exclude all other actors other than ourselves. If we're going to persevere trial, if we're going to receive a crown of life, if we're going to mature in our faith, we need to own this through and through, not just tip our hat to it. That's why I'm, that's why I'm belaboring this point, maybe going long this morning. 
We need to own this. So James is now going to give us a threefold progression of what happens when we go down this other path. It's not God tempting you. It's not even the devil tempting you. It's your own lusts, your own desires. Your own desires are responsible for your temptation. Then James, who's very colorful in his language, switches to a fishing and hunting metaphor. I hadn't really done much hunting until I came to Iowa. I'd done some fishing with my father back in New England. The words he uses here, each one is lured and enticed. That's hunting and fishing terms. That's the imagery. So I want to set the stage of what he's picturing. Your own desires hunt and fish for you. You're, you're being hunted in temptation. You're being stalked in temptation. And the one who's doing the hunting and the one who's doing the stalking is you, your heart, your desires. The angler holding the rod is you. The object he hunts is you. Now, I think it's important that we unpack this because the way we fight back against temptation is to unmask it for what it is. One of the things that's true about fishing, true about hunting, is the hunter, the fisher, has to disguise the nature of who and what he is and the threat he poses. Last time I checked, fish don't like to eat metal, especially sharp, pointy metal. Last time I checked, wild animals were scared of humans and so what does a hunter do? He puts on camouflage and he covers his scent and he sets up a tree stand and he remains very still and he causes his quarry to think of him as other than he is. He minimizes the danger he represents. Fishing is an even better picture because the fisherman takes a lifeless piece of cold metal with a sharp hook and makes it look like a tasty morsel. And the fish is deceived. The fish thinks it's biting down on good food. And it is ensnared. It is enticed and dragged away. The end of the line is death. And so we, we need to know this. When our desires begin to woo us and entice us and promise us good things, we, we need by faith to say, oh, hold on. Hold on, I know, I know it's at the end of the line. It's death. Death's at the end of the line. Not pleasure, not blessing. We need to remember this. If, if we're taken captive by our desires, it's because they tricked us, they deceived us, they masked the danger, they dressed up the reward. And we need to remember that. We need to have a certain amount of incredulity to our own desires and the things we want. Step two, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now here, he's switching the metaphor again. In one sense, here's how temptation works. Your desires, my desires, hunt and stalk you. They want to take you captive. They want to drag you away. But now, the imagery has changed to one of a, a consummated relationship. Your desires are viewed as a harlot, as the sinful woman from Proverbs. And the picture is this, when desire unites with the will and the relationship is consummated, a pregnancy and a birth results. It's a fruitful coupling when desire and our will unite in one accord. It conceives and gives birth to sin. Turn to Proverbs 7. Proverbs chapter 7. Quickly read for you this picture. Because this is the imagery he's now using. Okay? These are the warnings Scripture gives. And again, I, I highlight this because this is how we fight back against temptation. It's reminding ourselves the true nature. It looks like it's one thing, but really it's another. It looks like it's a blessing. It looks, it won't be a big deal. No one's going to get hurt after all. I kind of deserve this. And all those different ways of buttering us up, flattering us, deceiving us, so we'll take the bait so that our will will engage. And then the hook goes in our mouth and we are dragged away. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 6. For at the window of my house I've looked out through the lattice and I've seen among the simple, I've perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness, 
Behold, a woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily and hurt. She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I have to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you. I seek you eagerly. I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us Delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, a full moon, and he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him with her smooth talk. She compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughterer, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare he does not know that it will cost him his life this is now the imagery james is employing about temptation first our desires lure and entice us they promise us great things cinnamon alloed couches and it costs us our life Pregnancy happens, a birth occurs, and this is how sin enters the world from our hearts. Your desires are pictured as a harlot, and sin is the product of the union of desire and the will. Sin is the product of the union of desire and the will. You're lured and enticed by desire, and then at some point, like the fish safe under the log, watching the thing go by. Finally, the will goes, okay, I'll bite. And in that moment, in that union, you and I sin. That means, and this is encouraging, merely being tempted is not sin. Strong temptation resisted is not sin. It can be an evidence of sin in us, but it's not sin. We don't sin until we yield, until the will says, okay, yes, I approve Sin, this, this is how we sin. It's not other people doing anything to us. It's our own desires hunting, stalking, fishing for us. We consummate a union with our will, and sin is born. Sin is born. Now, at this point, what should you do when we do this? We should confess our sins. We should... Return to the Lord. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we realize we've just birthed sin on our own, our desires and our will united, sin comes into the world. Confess it, turn from it, repent of it, mortify it. So that's step two. Step three considers what happens if we don't. What happens if we let this new baby sin grow strong and big? Step three. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Two points. Try to move quickly here. Sin left unchecked enslaves. Sin left unchecked enslaves. James' whole point is... This doesn't stop till it gets to the end of the line. And the end of the line is death. It starts with luring and enticing. Its second step is a union of the will and desire. That produces and births sin. But you're not done yet until you repent, till you mortify it, till you turn to the Lord. We're still on a path heading somewhere. There's a now consequence. Sin is the now consequence. And that's not all, folks. If we don't repent, crucify, mortify, put to death sin, it's going someplace too. Sin left unchecked enslaves. Proverbs 5, 22, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, ensnare him. He is held fast in the cords of his sin. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other or will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Romans chapter 6, 
Let not sin reign in your bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as sin, as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been bought. Do not know, verse 16, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey. You know, when we start tampering with sin, we flatter ourselves and tell ourselves we have mastery over it. It's such a small thing. I only click on those sites every now and then. I only indulge this desire ever so often. And I've got good excuses after all. It doesn't stay that way for long. Sin grows strong and the relationship reverses and we become enslaved by it. We become enslaved by it. 14 years ago, when I was teaching the youth, I gave this example. I don't know how it's held up over time. Imagine you discovered in the wild a litter of newborn baby wolverines. They'd be so cute. They'd nuzzle around and their eyes would hardly be open. And they'd be so cuddly and adorable. And you bring them home and you put them in a box and you give them their own room in their house. And you milk them and you, you give them the bottle and you feed them. And then you move them on to little strips of meat. And they're so cute. And they love you. And they're going to do what you say. You're going to go everywhere with them. And they're not going to be a problem. But the nature of a wolverine is different than what you think it is. And that relationship will one day change. And one day you walk into the room with the seven full-grown wolverines. And because of their nature and what they are, despite your love, despite all your good intentions, they tear you to pieces. We all know stories of people who thought they had tamed wild animals, only to have their true nature come out tragically. Don't fool yourself with your sin. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Sin's going somewhere. It's moving. It's got a telos an end, a goal. Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Sin left unchecked enslaves, and sin left unchecked produces spiritual death. Sin left unchecked produces spiritual death. I think he's talking about spiritual death. I think he's talking about hell here. Why? Two reasons. It's the perfect contrast to the crown of life in verse 12. And put these two roads side by side. Persevering under trial has a now effect. You mature, you grow strong, you become fully orbed and complete. You learn perseverance. What's the now effect of blaming God, blame shifting and temptation? Sin. Okay, what's the later effect of further perseverance and endurance and testing under trial? You receive the crown of life which God's promised to those who love him. Death. Life. And death. Two paths. This is classic Jewish thought. Also, turn to the end of James. The only other time he talks about death in a somewhat similar context, he's clearly talking about spiritual death. Don't minimize the significance here. James chapter 5, in his final warning, his final section, verses 19 and 20, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. Will save his soul from death. And we'll cover a multitude of sins. No, I think James is talking about hell. Eternal death. He pictures this. Christians sin. Absolutely we do. Christians cannot keep on sinning. First John says, for God's seed abides in us because the good shepherd comes and gets us and if need be breaks our legs to bring us home. James is picturing here the final end stop of a will united with sinful desire, birthing sin, and that sin's left alone. It's not resisted. It's not killed. It's not crucified. And it grows to be big and strong. Left unchecked, it'll drag us to hell because it'll prove we have no faith. If our faith habitually, consistently, everywhere and always fails the test that he talks about in verse 3, we never had it. So, no, we can't have pet baby sins. They will never have to give 
up. They only become stronger every day. Repenting of our sin is harder tomorrow than it is today because it's stronger tomorrow than it is today. That's the critical truth to understand. We need to spot temptation at the outset, the lies of our lusts and desires. Say, no, 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 I know that you're, you're promising me a lie. That's death on a string. If and when we succumb to temptation and our will yields and we sin, we need to own up to it, confess it to the Lord, return to him, and he returns to us. Resist the devil, James says in chapter four. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. But if you don't, if you harbor your pet sin, you feed it, it will gain mastery over you, and it will bear its full-orbed fruit of death, and you will perish. So, what do we do? We need to commit to believe these things. We need to deal honestly with the Lord. The very next verse, look, look, look here. There's another contrast. This, this final result of death contrasts with verse 12, the crown of life. It also contrasts with verse 18, right? Look, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, of his own will, he brought us forth. Same Greek word. Sin brings forth something. It's death. God brought forth something. It was you and I spiritually alive. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. If you're caught in sin, if this third stage we've been looking at describes you if you're still alive in this world it hasn't brought forth full orb to death yet there's still time my counsel to you is the same counsel I'd give to anyone walking in darkness call upon the Lord humble yourself resist the devil he'll flee from you draw near to God he'll draw near to you God has sent his son for sinners like us the Christian caught in sin, he's the same message the unbeliever needs. Repent and turn to Christ. Trust him. The gospel brings us into God's family, and the gospel restores us again and again in God's family. As we cry out, I'm sorry, I'm wrong, help. Turn to, turn to James chapter 4. We'll close here as the worship team gets ready to come up for a closing song. James invoking the imagery of a spiritual adultery, similar to the adultery that happens when we conceive sin with our desires. Verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? And we get this great gospel news. But he gives more grace. Yeah, this, is, this, this threefold progression James is describing is bad. But even now, if you're here, if you're listening, he gives more grace. He gives more grace. He gives a way of escape. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Understand, it's the proud heart that wants to shift the blame. I don't want to feel shame. I don't want to be humbled. I want an excuse. It's pride and self-righteousness that wants to blame others for our sin and temptation. Surely it can't be my fault. Me of all people. God opposes the proud. Humble yourself. Own your temptation. Confess your sin. Agree with God. That's what confession means. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning and joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. and He will exalt you. That's the answer. Turn to Christ. Call out to him. Humble yourself. Confess your sin. God gives more grace. But let us not deceive ourselves. 
with the nature of the terrible things with which we toy and play, when we minimize our sin, when we shift the blame for our sin, when we have pet sins, they will devour us, they will enslave us, they want to drag us to hell. Call out to God. Think rightly about your temptation. Draw near to him and his help. Let's pray, Lord God. I pray that you would give us the grace to receive this word truly, to internalize it, to, to root out all the subtle ways we excuse our sin, that we shift the blame, the responsibility that is ours. Help us to draw near to you. Help us, give us the grace to see the lies of our desire, to expose the trap, the hook, the barb. Lord, if and when we do sin, I pray that you would give us the grace to confess it, to turn from it, not to be mastered by it, Lord God. If there's anyone here under sin's dominion, I pray that you would free them in Christ, that you would make them free indeed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.